0: Welcome to another episode of Upto. Eight years ago, Upto started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives and in doing so have found there is a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Today's episode is a special one. We've reached out to one of our most talked about guests and asked him to return to the show for a second time, Ambassador Doug Holliday. Given the situation that the entire world finds itself in right now, dealing with the coronavirus, it seemed appropriate to have him back on the show, if at all possible. Doug Holliday is incredibly eloquent when speaking about the perils of isolation and loneliness, a few of the challenges that many of us are facing currently. That being said, we're conducting our very first interview over the phone here on Up To. It starts off a little bit slow, but as Adam and Ambassador Holliday get comfortable, the conversation overflows with valuable insights and powerful takeaways. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. During the first season of
1: the up to podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make happily is to partner with Vivid Front, a full service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals and they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc Magazine, Top 5,000 Fastest Growing Companies, North Coast's Top Places to Work, and several others. They're known for their talent, they're known for their creativity, they're known for their culture, a firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show. Check out vividfront.com, or you can email me and I'll introduce you to their
0: dynamic leader, Andrew Spott. Welcome back. You're listening to the Up To Podcast, and our guest today is Doug Holiday, And here's your host, Adam Kaufman. Hello, everyone.
1: My guest today is a UNC grad, a Princeton Theological Seminary grad, and Oxford University grad. He's been an advisor to three US presidents. He's worked at the State Department, including a special ambassador to South Africa. He's been an executive officer with Goldman Sachs and also co-founded his own private equity firm. Now he's a Georgetown professor and also the founder and CEO of a unique organization called Path North. And just around the corner, he'll be releasing soon his first book, Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Work and Meaning in Life published by Harper One, a unit of HarperCollins. Doug Holiday, welcome to this special edition of the Up To podcast. We find ourselves in a very different context right now. What have you been up to?
2: Yeah, well, I've been trying to self-quarantine, whatever that means, but I, I happen to sneak out every now and then. We won't uh, tell anyone. <laughs> these are really interesting times. It raises a lot of... Uh, Questions for people about are they comfortable being alone? And as you and I have talked, sometimes there's a difference between being lonely and being comfortable alone.
1: Yeah, you're really good at solitude. That's one of the things I want to bring up with you. You were our first guest of our second season, and I want you to know, I don't think I've told you this, that among all the terrific leaders we've had on our show, your appearance generated the most positive feedback, and I still cannot believe how many people told me that they were either working out or uh, driving, and they had to pull over or stop working out to take notes on some important comment you made or some observation you shared. Wow, wow, That's, that's, that's scary. (laughs) <laughs> it's it really is tremendous. I know you you're you're being humble. Uh, you are humble, but uh, really uh, a major impact last time, and I suspect we'll talk about some important meaning topics today as well. Great. Someone recently Great. asked me actually, it was uh, Dave Douglas, our producer here, what were my favorite moments of last season, and what came to mind is your counterintuitive emphasis, Doug, on perceived weaknesses and how if we embrace those and talk about those as our points of identity, rather than the more common brags that human nature people seem to want to lead with, that
2: we become more relatable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, our our point of identity with others is not our strengths, but our weaknesses, and that's the connecting tissue. But most of us are are terrified to go there because we've been told to project you know an external kind of persona or image that sometimes doesn't bear any resemblance to the to the real you know self and so what i'm trying to do myself and encouraging others to do is try to align both of those who you are inside with what you project outside mm-hmm. so so when you start to risk it a little bit and share that you may you know you might not know the answer to something or you, you know you, you wish you were a better leader, telling your team these things or, or your board of directors, it does almost the opposite from what you think. Instead of instead of making you appear weak, it it makes you strong because they all know uh, that. That they aren't as advertised, but we all, it almost has to be someone has to do it first and begin to take the baby steps toward uh, being much more authentic and real. But that could become contagious in a good way. And I
1: was reading also your recipe for an oddly rich life uh, preparing for today. Mm -hmm. And it it included one of the points similar to what we're talking about. I think it was becoming the authentic you, Becoming yeah. the authentic you, revealing weakness. Like, why is that important?
2: Well, you know, you think of it right now. I think people, what they're drawn to, if you think of who you're drawn to, you're not necessarily drawn to perfect people or people that have just in an, as an end in themselves have, have achieved a lot. But what you're drawn to is authentic people. Some of them could be achievers, but come on, some could just be, very normal people who are, who are really comfortable in their own skin. And so, so the more authentic we are and the more we get in touch with ourselves, uh, the more comfortable we get, the more relatable we are, the more connected, all the things we long for that, that this loneliness epidemic only highlights in in the whole culture, uh, you know, we get these things because, we're starting to admit our fears, our questions, and and that's okay to admit them. You know, to you've to really in. positively
1: affected me on that. Excuse me, I'm I'm sorry. We're doing this for the first time. I'm taking a risk by doing my first podcast without having a guest in front of me. So forgive me if there's a bit of a interruption moment there, Doug. I'm sorry.
2: No problem. I need to be interrupted. <laughs> but what
1: you were just saying, you've, you've taught me to do that, to embrace my perceived uh, shortcomings and my fears. And I feel like I've seen the positive effects of that. So thank you. Oh, great.
2: Well, and I have too. I mean, it just, uh, I think I, in the book, I, I tell the story in my class one time, I mentioned that. That's one of the first things I, when I teach this MBA course at Georgetown, the first day I said, your point of identity with everyone in here is not how smart you are or capable you are or what a great leader you are, but your weakness. And then a young man on the front row immediately interrupted me, said, professor, could I say something? I said, sure, Clark. And he said, you know, I've been trying to get in this class for a while and I finally got in, so I'm going to be all in. And this is the first five minutes of class. He said, you know, I've always been strong academically, but um, I really lived in the shadows because I had a debilitating stutter. And I, it just caused me never to interact with people. So I was always alone, uh, As you know, very strong academically, as mentioned. But he said, I went to an Ivy League school my sophomore year. He's telling us this. I decided I was going to take my life Hmm. because I was so isolated. And he said, before I did it, I'm going to go up to some people and just tell them I can't string three sentences together. And he decided to do this. Now imagine that. He's telling the class this. And then he said, I had two discoveries when I did that. First, the more I shared and tried to speak, I started to get more comfortable speaking and it was really amazing. And Mm -hmm. then second, the more I shared my weakness, other people started sharing those. And for the first time I felt connected. And then he paused almost like for dramatic effect. He said, guess what else, professor? I said, what, Clark? He said, I am, I'm the student body president of, you know, the MBA class here at Georgetown. Mm -hmm. And I have to give speeches all the time. So uh, I, I, being a you know, smart Alec, I, I said, so, so class, you're all superstars in here. Clark has revealed a massive failing and a weakness. How many of you during our break want to go out and, you know, get out of this course, go to the registrar and transfer? How many? Of Obviously, no one raised their hand. I said, right. how many of you feel safer in your own weakness and 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 mistakes and failings. Everyone raised their of hand. Of course. Said, if you learn nothing else, this is the life lesson that will transform the way you lead.
1: That authenticity Clark shared became, I'm sure, very contagious and others started sharing. How, how about you? Are you doing that? Are you good at being authentic? I've actually never asked you that before. I hope you don't mind. Uh,
2: yeah, you know, you would probably know better or others would. I, You know, I try to, I try to um, uh, raise the questions I have and, and the fears I have about leading. And mm-hmm. I know there's so many things I'm not good at. So I, I try to integrate it into my, to my leadership style. So um,
1: I think you're good at yeah. it. You're often saying, I'm not good at this or that. And
2: yeah. it helps yeah. others and,
1: fill that yeah. gap.
2: Yeah, exactly. I, there's so many things that I'm not good at. I know I'm an imaginative person. I know I'm good at certain things, inventing solutions to things. But you're so I creative
1: not. and you're I, so um, inclusive, not to stroke your ego, but those are two things well, I'm really fond of. I
2: enjoy doing those and I, I feel I'm drawn to those, but I am a terrible operator. I don't know how to do all the things that, that good chief operating officers would do. That's why... You know, people like Melanie are on the team and, mm-hmm. and others. They're so good at these things. Right, and, right. Uh-huh.
1: Well, let's switch now. We'll we'll take you off the hot seat of your own authentic <laughs> shortcomings. Sure. Switching to the uh, undeniable most important topic of the day, the coronavirus. You and I are not experts on that. Yeah. Uh, so we'll leave yeah. others to address that, but we have to acknowledge it. It's had an impact on everyone, everything in society. So how how are you doing during these uncertain times?
2: Yeah, good question. Uh, We started something with uh, my family yesterday. We're going to do a weekly call just to check in and, Mm -hmm. you know, and try not to make it too dramatic because my my tendency is, okay, we've got to do something meaningful. Let's read an article or something Mm -hmm. inspirational. (laughs) I think just, we just had a FaceTime and just checked in with each other. How we doing? You know, that's good to uh, have people
1: in different parts of the country, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. My two oldest are in LA and mm-hmm. my uh, youngest is here. So that, that was great. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think if you allow this to be, it could be a great moment to, mm-hmm. to learn things, uh, how to be still like Pascal in 1666 wrote in a, an unfinished book called Ponces, which in French means thoughts. He wrote this, the, you know, the fundamental problem of a person is never learning to be alone within four walls. Hmm. And so, so you think of that for a minute, wouldn't it be a great test to learn? So many of us don't know how to be quiet. Even when we're at our house, we have to have music on we're on the internet. I'm guilty of and that. Television. Well, and, and we all can be. Uh, we just want to fill. And Pascal goes on and Ponce he's talking about distractions. This is in the 17th century. He's talking about how we distract ourselves from thinking about what really matters. So I think I'm urging myself and others just sit still. I try to take some time every day and look into the fire and just try to be still
1: and be comfortable. You're piercing my heart. I went into the shower yesterday and I brought my phone in there to listen to music. like how stupid that was just for the the seven minutes or whatever I was in there. I've always been impressed about how you do bring quiet into your life. And maybe you were just about to uh, explain that. But you meditate and I find that very difficult. I've tried to take some tips from you on how to get that started. And you also, I believe, you take very high-achieving leaders on a solitude retreat every winter. Isn't that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. So in Path North, we try to do disruptive things that, that almost deny people um, certain uh, aptitudes and defaults that they can always, you know, run to. So you were there a number of years back. We went to London, and we went to a restaurant, called le Noir in the Dark, mm-hmm. run and owned by blind people. So you go in and, as you remember, it's pitch black for two hours, and it it's unsettling to, to deny one sense. Well, I realized for me when I was in graduate school at Princeton, I met a monk once, and he asked me to come out to the monastery. I went out there, and I realized that this could be a great exercise to just go out, spend time in solitude like the monks do. So we've been doing this at a place in Berryville. It's a Trappist monastery, about an hour and a half outside of Washington. And we take, you know, hedge fund managers, CEOs, business owners. And for two and a half days, we are together, but alone. Mm-hmm. And it's very different experience being in community and being to together, but, but really not talking. So think of it, you eat together. There are seven services a day. The, the, you know, the, the Trappist tradition, you go through this and they chant and you can go to those or not go to this. Some of our people have a real faith that come on this thing. Some don't at all. Mm -hmm. And some are seekers as C.S. Lewis called it. And, and they go, but It is powerful, it's unsettling. We tell them there's gonna be moments that are really hard when you're walking and you pass somebody, do you touch them, do you smile, do you say hi? And we say, look, the greatest gift you can give each other is just just be in your own world and just let go. But I urge people to, we give them a a diary, ask them to write down what bubbles up, what are your fears, what are your concerns, what, what about this experience? And I have to tell you, the people that have gone, it's been transformational. We had one guy that manages money for about 20 of the most powerful families in America. And he went, and his wife called me up about a month later and said, what happened to my husband? He is different. So he now takes a half hour in the morning and a half hour during the workday and just goes alone, silent, and Everyone said he's a deeper, better person because of this, you know. Mm. So And so the wife's
1: very happy with you for doing oh that for God, her husband. She
2: came the, she came the next year.
1: I mm. loved it. Well, I know one time I went to uh, a silent retreat called Manresa in rural Louisiana. And I was a real disbeliever. How am I going to do this? It was actually four nights. And... I couldn't get over myself, you know, because I'm so important, Doug. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the world evolves (laughs) around me in my own head. And Yeah, I've been honored to be in this. Right. So I I went down to this retreat, though, because I trusted the invitor, the person who was taking me. Right, right. And it was a risk for me. And the first meal, like you're describing, where you can't talk during meals, it was like 10 men around our table. And I noticed that at my table, and we're not talking, but I noticed that the— owner of the New Orleans Saints, Tom Benson. He has now passed away, but Tom Benson was there and the editor of the New Orleans Times-Picune newspaper. And I thought if those guys can like turn it off for a few yeah. hours or a few days, little old me, I, I can do it too. I should be able to do it. The world will be fine without yeah. me emailing and talking for a few days. Right.
2: Yeah. Good. That's great. Now, it, it, you really have to be brave to do this. And Part of it is getting comfortable in your own skin. It's, right. It, you know, it's an interesting quote by e. e. Cummings. He said, to be nobody but yourself in a world that's trying to get you to be everyone but yourself is the bravest thing any of us could do. Everybody and but you yourself. I love that. It's, it's really brave to really try to discover who you are because— we've all, we all try to adopt certain personas and Mm -hmm. and imagine views of what success is and what it would look like. And, and we're trying to always project all these things. I mean, the whole advertising culture is built on the fact that we're dissatisfied and, you know, you really, you really say, how, how can I get comfortable with just me? And, you know, you really think of this thing dust to dust. Mm. You know we're 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 gonna someday be alone and on that deathbed and just learning you know are we terrified with that? Can we learn how to do this so so anyway, it's been a great learning for me. Mm-hmm. I think that you know i I love doing it you know, a couple friends we said we've gotta do this longer because you know the last time I had. You know, I invited Raj Shah, the CEO of um, Rockefeller Foundation. Raj flew right in from Davos. So he was really in the hyperactive world of Davos in Switzerland and showed up. And, you know, he was on that hyper zone. And now all of a sudden you could just see the peace take over, you Mm -hmm. know, hour by hour, day by day. And he just loved it. And everyone says the same thing after two and a half days. I need it more time.
1: One of my other mentors, you're talking about the timing. You've met Jim Jameson, and you had him speak at your class.
2: Lovely guy.
1: He has companies in six different countries, uh, four different continents, always busy, always on the move. Yet he takes two weeks, two weeks a year to go to rural France and to spend time with, ironically, again, monks there. Uh-huh. to do something similar. And he swears by it. So wow, wow! whether That's, it's two days or uh-huh. two weeks, I think uh, any of this um, can, can make us better versions of ourselves.
2: Absolutely. And it can start small. I did it with my class. I just finished it the last time. Thankfully we slipped in before they closed down, mm-hmm. started closing down all the schools, but um, you know, I had them go off for an hour. I said, you can't take any technology, no pen and paper. And <clears throat> it was it was terrifying for some. Mm-hmm. Now this is amazing. So the average age is about thirty, but terrifying for some, and some of them said this was transformational, just one hour. So I just urge people start small baby steps. Go for a walk. Right. Don't don't take any electronic stuff. Just observe. What about all this
1: additional alone time we have right now? How do we make the most of this solitude without it becoming a time of loneliness? Loneliness is often one of your favorite, important topics. So how do we yeah, how do we yeah. make the most of it without it becoming a problem?
2: Yeah, I think a couple things I've been thinking about. Um, you know, you need to have a little bit of structure in the day because I think what terrifies people structure in the with, day. That's good. You know, what's terrifying people right now about this virus is the ambiguity. It's almost like if you knew the worst you can step up and, and you say, okay, I have cancer. I, you know, you go. Let's develop Kuh- a plan. Yeah. Kubler-Ross has the, you know, the five stages of grief you go through and you, you go through those things. And the last stage is acceptance. You go from denial, number one, to acceptance. And sometime in this case, I, I'd say some people were in, Different stages of that they go through an angry stage and right and and a questioning a blaming and all these victim
1: things. victim stage why me yeah. why why can't I go to work or
2: right, right. why can't
1: and, I visit my mother in a and why home? why did I
2: lose so much and who, whose fault is it that my portfolio is down right. a third and right. you know I'm terrified and fear so so I'd say number one is to understand that fear the biggest. The biggest challenge today is ambiguity. It's like no, not knowing how long this is going to go on. What are the long-term ramifications for our society and our world? And it's, it's almost like I had this friend, uh, Jimmy Morton. I mentioned this in the book, I think, about he was a tennis player, played in college. And I remember he went through a very difficult time. For two years, he could not get a diagnosis. He was losing weight, had all these issues. And then he called me up one day ecstatic. He was just so happy. I said, Jimmy, what's going on? He said, finally, I got a diagnosis. I said, must be good news. He says, it's not. But I finally know the diagnosis mm-hmm. and I can arrange my life accordingly. And I think that's the challenge that people are facing right now. They don't know what in the world. Right, right. This means: Are we going to be in this same state in a year? When is my are child we... going back to school? Yeah, exactly, and and all the the issues that are caused by those kind of vagaries. And uh, I think in the middle of that, what we need it was almost like a Churchillian call. The thing that happened with Churchill in the midst of the darkest hour in London and England, uh, he would really you know, speak out and give a vision. We can do this. Trust me, I have it. And he had built up the social and moral capital Earned to really trust of the nation. Yeah. So, so, so you almost need leaders right now who, who believe for us, even when we can't believe for ourselves. We're going to get through this. You're listening to the Up
1: To Podcast. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To Podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all-non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. One of the aspects of podcasting I enjoy the most is the ability to delve into long form discussions without any interruption other than a periodic commentary about one of our partners. I'm grateful that Calfee, Ohio-based law firm, has agreed to partner with us. They have offices throughout Ohio and also in Washington, D.C., in New York, and Indianapolis, too. They are a full-service firm, every type of legal need. One example I'll share right now, because so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs, is not too long ago, a friend of mine sold his company to a public corporation. And with that came some restrictions and ramifications on his future employment. And to navigate through that properly, he asked my advice. And without hesitation, I recommended Calfee because I knew they'd have the right type of specialist to help him with his particular needs. And my friend continues to rave about that experience. And I'm very grateful that Calfee has agreed to partner with UpTo. So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, uh, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfee. You can find them at C-A-L-F-E-E dot
0: com or on the UpTo Foundation website. Welcome back. You're listening to the UpTo Podcast with Adam Kaufman. Today's guest is Doug Holliday.
1: Now back to the uh, loneliness topic for a moment. I was really intrigued when a couple years ago, the UK established a Minister of Loneliness cabinet position. They were were kind of ahead of the curve.
2: Yeah, and Theresa May, as when she was prime minister, did that. And
1: you've been talking about loneliness for a long time. Are you hearing about any effective best practices to counter the loneliness right now? Is it FaceTime and Zoom and listening to terrific podcasts? Or, you know, how are your peer group dealing with this?
2: Well, I think you're you're really on to something there because I think there's been this real conversation going on. Is technology the problem of the friend? You just look at this, you know, on the one hand, we can recruit for terrorism because of the technology and all these horrible manifestations. The good news is it's being used for good. As you know, Adam, last Wednesday, we started a, a FaceTime, uh, with our community in path north. Anybody else that wants to be a part of it where we're just talking honestly about the wor- the moment we find ourselves in. And I think people really benefited and appreciated. Cause yeah, Cause there were more than f-
1: 50 participants on that one zoom yeah, call.
2: It's just our first one, and I think it's just only going to grow, but you know, you think of this, you look in the Torah, the first five books of the old Testament in the Torah, In Genesis, it says it's not good for a man to be alone. Most of us associate that with marital things, the vow, when that's spoken. But it's also true when individuals get isolated, bad things happen. Mm -hmm. So UCLA has this loneliness epidemic, and they found that one of two Americans now, They have a study, you mean? UCLA has a study about it? Okay. Yeah. UCLA, I I said, actually has something called the Loneliness Index. Okay. And they have found that one of two Americans self-report that they're lonely now. Wow. And that's just, that's growing. And so, so you, what has caused that? Affluence. I remember my grandmother tell me during World War II, you know, the daughters of, her boys who were all fighting, you know, they lived together and they had borders in their house and all mm-hmm. that. Well, well, the very affluence that separates, I, I live in McLean, Virginia. We have these gargantuan houses. Who lives in these? You know, they're <laughs> so big. And you say, you, you know, you say we're isolating ourselves, uh, and that's a high-class problem. But that's just one aspect of it. I think this is a danger for everybody. Yes, uh, there's always been fears about is technology gonna uh, separate us. I have this great cartoon It has two cavemen in front of a fire, and and one caveman says to the other, "Before we had fire, we used to talk." <laughs> <You know? laughs> we should and, put you know, that on our website. Technology that's great. Has been a challenge, you know when when the telephone came out was invented the if you look at some of the papers in those days, it was like there goes the end of the family. We're mm. not going to talk anymore. Mm. We're not going to have dinner together. So I think there's all that, but I think there's all these uses where people are now talking. Right. Uh, we shared ideas on that call where yes. people were having virtual cocktail parties, where right. they're sitting there with a glass of wine or a cocktail, talking to five other people and. That's kind of cool, and you know, they're we're just learning different ways to socialize. And I'm proud of my wife.
1: I'll I'll chime in here. She taught oh, yeah, her first. She's
2: doing yoga. She's doing that. Yeah, great. she
1: she did her first Facebook live yoga class called Sanctified Yoga, and 72 people were participating via technology. It was, it was so amazing from different states, of course, and I think yeah. even one from Australia.
2: So. I I just,
1: I'll I'll tell you said that. Thank you.
2: I'm so proud of her because I think we need to venture out and try these things. Maybe some will fail, but some, some will work. Take the risks. Um, Yeah. Take the risks. But I think, I think we have to, you know, try things. And I I think getting out of our comfort zone, saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to connect in this new way. And, for some of us that did you know, that are that didn't grow up with all these technologies that are part of our, our life and the way that they are for millennials and others. Right. It's it's challenging, but it's wonderful, you know.
1: We're moving next to your new book. But first, I just had a conclusion listening to you. I mentioned the UK having a Minister of Loneliness. We don't have that position in the United States, but if I were president I'll commit right now, you will become the minister of loneliness. This is such a good uh, area of expertise for you. So congratulations for that.
2: Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's funny. It's, it's just a, it's an observation. And, and the observation is I don't care what level of success you have, whether you're a middle school principal or your athletic director or you're a CEO of a Fortune 50 company. It's all the same. Yes. When you arrive at some level of success, the unintended consequences are to isolate you. So you have to develop strategies where you can break out of that cocoon because it's, it's not a happy life. And it's... It's you know, lonely
1: it's, at the top really is true. And the higher the top, yeah. the lonelier it can definitely be. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Excellent. So, okay,
1: tell us about the book, Rethinking Success, published by a unit of HarperCollins. Congratulations. Thank you. What inspired you to write it? Who, who's your audience?
2: Um, well, exactly what I just said there. The people who have experienced the unintended consequences of of success, and they're saying there's got to be more. So, you know, my class that I teach, MBA class at Georgetown, I I talk about that. You know, Aristotle called it a life of thriving. To have a life of real thriving and purposeful, I talk about you have to add, you know, ask yourself ten questions. So this is a variation on this. This is eight principles that that really are important to look at. Mm-hmm. And you know, I look at like the importance of really understanding what is success and failures, like that poem by Kipling called "If." He talks about those two imposters. And isn't it interesting? He didn't talk about the imposter just being failure. He said success is also an imposter. Mm. So I look at these things and say all these things that seem so wonderful have a soft underbelly. So I talk about the power of risk, the the importance of knowing your story, what story you were born into. Because your story, the one you were born into, is going to determine so much about how you view success, how you view meaning, how you control your own personal anger. And some would say, well, so what's what's the difference between this book and great writers like David Brooks, Arthur Brooks, Adam Grant, Daniel Pink? They're all smart. Well, number one, they're all much smarter than I am. <laughs> number two, I think it's like the Hamilton musical – it says we're Hamilton singing, i I just I want to be in the room. And I think I've had the benefit of being in the room, you know, the Goldman Sachs, at the State Department, at 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 the White House, you know, private equity, where I've been in the room with leaders. And really seeing them under pressure and make good decisions, bad decisions. So I've had the privilege of being trusted by a lot of really interesting people. So I've brought a lot of the richness of those experiences uh, into this conversation. You know, uh, I think of one. You know, when I used to I used to stay with Lawrence Rockefeller on Fifth Avenue, and I remember one time he's deceased now, but I said, I said Lawrence, what is it like? to be a Rockefeller, mm-hmm. you know, after we're drinking his great Bordeaux. And I I said, <laughs> what is that really like? And he said, well, I have this reoccurring nightmare that I'm in the bottom of a well and my grandfather, John D. Rockefeller, and my father are looking down on me scornfully and they won't help me out. I'm trapped mm. down in, in this well. And he said that feeling of being trapped, he said, You know, no one cries crocodile tears if you're a Rockefeller, but we have problems too. Right. And so I, you know, I've had these incredible experiences that have taught me, well, if people like that uh, have experienced this great isolation and loneliness, no matter how much they have or how much they've accomplished, maybe it's okay for me to be authentic and honest yes. about my question these and my my struggles
1: well you're meandering towards a question that i wanted to ask today regarding the book i liked uh, in the outline the importance of knowing your own story you just mentioned that yes. when, when doug did you learn your own story and did that help you crystallize your career goals or what you wanted to be or what you didn't want to be like when do people start to realize their own story and what can they do with that?
2: Well, I, you know, it's on an unconscious level until someone asks you the question. So I see the lights go off with CEOs I work with and, and with my MBA students when I say, you know, if you grew up in an angry household, that's what you've seen. I don't care. And I, I just finished a book by a psychiatrist that it doesn't matter what you were taught by you know, all these parenting strategies. Mm-hmm. What you observed is how you're going to act. Mm. I mean, that's scary for some of us. It is,
1: all uh, of us who are parents.
2: Yeah, because some of us have grown up really angry, violent families. And and sadly, we're going to reproduce or reenact that stuff unless we do two things. One is be honest about the story we we're born into and two, make different decisions. So for me... I was unconscious of a real driver in my life. What was that? The driver came back to my father, which he grew up in a small town in Mississippi. And he, he was always really curious. And his mother was a big church goer. He tried to go there, but he would ask questions. And in those days, that was not celebrated or invited. So my father increasingly felt disconnected from things of faith. And actually became an atheist. So yeah. I actually grew up in an atheist family,
1: okay,
2: uh, which is kind of unusual, you know, uh, where you didn't you didn't have any input in that way. But I realized that my whole life, and that, this didn't happen until two years ago, where I was talking to the editor at Harper Collins, and he said, "Doug, why have you your whole life tried to create these safe spaces?" for leaders to explore what really matters most. And a a light went on and I said, I am trying to create the kind of space that I wish my father had. He never had a context to explore Mm. because all they cared about, they just believe, don't question, don't, don't be curious. And so that's been my whole life. And whatever circumstance I've been in, I feel like I've asked those kind of questions of the leaders I've been around Mm. and I've, you know, unwittingly created those, those kind of spaces. Thanks for
1: sharing that about your, your own family. Uh, you mentioned earlier, a lot of this takes bravery, so I know it's no big deal to you, but not a lot of people would share that. So thank you. Let me ask Mm -hmm. you, do you still have any relatives in Mississippi? There's a reason I'm asking.
2: Um, I think I do. Yeah. I've got a couple, uh, doctors and and where are they the by I'm
1: trying to think where oh. they are in Mississippi Well they're in Mississippi that's all I need to know because I'm going to keep going here because for some odd reason we've had up to listeners in every state in America other than two wow. and one of them's Mississippi so wow. hopefully wow. you being on up to will get us downloaded in that great <laughs> state of Mississippi I'm being flippant of course uh, after you shared something important uh Doug, the theme of the Up To podcast is featuring leaders who are as humble as they are successful. And one of the tenets of your book is about gratitude. I found uh, this quote preparing for today's conversation. Humility and gratitude are the twin characters of happiness. This isn't from your book, but humility and gratitude. So something important to me, something you're focusing on are the twin characters of happiness. And a man named Richard Edgley said this, and he's a senior figure in the Mormon church leadership, interestingly enough. But I really loved how those two character traits um, were cited together. Why is gratitude uh, in your world, in your view, so important?
2: Well, I think gratitude evokes to me pausing, And observing around you. We're all, we're such a striving culture. I want more. I want to do more. That's for sure. But but what gratitude forces you to step back and be quiet and remember and recall and just say, wow, there's a lot working. There's a lot good in my life. You know, in other words, you don't have to make a list of all the things that suck in your life. They're always, <laughs> oh, Right. you say, oh my gosh, I wish I had this. How am I going to pay for this? We think oh, about it too much. Yeah, we think about. it. We're obsessed with it. But what gratitude does, and neurologists tell us, there's a lot of research on this, that if you just step back and every day just think of two or three things, that does, they don't have to be dramatic, but I love this dark roast Italian coffee I just made. I like just sitting in front of the fire. Uh, just just capturing yes. little things and writing them down. It's unbelievable what this does to your perspective and your, your outlook toward life. It's a discipline. And the problem is everything today is more, more, more. It was almost this guy, uh, Jim Barksdale, who started uh, Netscape. Netscape, so, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. He sold it for billions of dollars, and I think it was either Fortune or Forbes used to ask him every day how much money would make him truly satisfied. Mm. And the first year was like $2 million. then he got wealthier. He got up to a billion, and it wor- was worth billions and billions. And he, he finally said, is there any number where that would really make you satisfied and feel like you are where you are? And he simply said, well, for one day, I'd like to be richer than Bill Gates, but that'll never happen.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: But but you almost say, for all of us, there's these subtle, subtle markers that we say, if only I had this. So what gratitude does is it enables you to develop a language and a practice of contentment. So gratitude enables you to say, Wow. I have a lot. I, I've i been really blessed.
1: And that's a great aspect of gratitude on oneself, like how that positively benefits me if I feel grateful. Yes. You also yes. talk about, and you put it into action all the time, you bestow gratitude on others. So I know how that makes me feel or others feel when you thank them for something. Uh, yeah. Everyone deserves more thank yous than they receive. And yeah. the most humble people say, oh, it's no big deal. That's fine. Sure, I'll go on your podcast. But I really am grateful when you take time out on your morning to do something like this.
2: Oh, uh, thanks, Adam. Well, well, there's an interesting guy, and this is a little terrifying, what he came up with. There's a guy named Dr. John Gottman. and I think he teaches the University of Washington. But he's kind of the leading expert researcher on on relationships. And he counsels people, but he also... Uh, does a lot of research on this, but he came up with this metric. He can observe, like if he meets with a couple for an hour, whether they're going to make it long-term. Mm. And he said, he said, it's simply this. For every negative interaction you have with a significant other, whether it's you know, your partner, your wife, a business colleague, for every negative one interaction, you have to have five positive. Now that's stunning to me. That is. That, that he his research has pointed that out. And it's really hard to do if you think of it. It's easy to kind of criticize. God, why don't you take out the trash? Very easy. You know, you're this, you're that and you just think to find five things. So so I would say there was a book written in the uh, 80s and it was called The One Minute Manager and oh, it's yeah. a small book but it had a great thing. Very popular. Said, catch people doing the right thing. We all, we, we always catch our teenage saying, Oh my gosh. Brush your teeth. You, you're always late. I mean, it, you can make that list and it goes on and on. But if you catch them and have the same, you think about where's the energy go in a relationship? It's usually negative. Right. But if instead of that, you said, Hey, Adam, I got it. Would you come to my office? I got something I got to say. Go, oh my God. Hey, I just want you to know, you were so fabulous in that, that interview was with, mm. with Joe.
1: Thanks. That was
2: just really good. And it's like,
1: wow. Affirming oh, people need to be affirmed more. And you yes. are really good at that. And I loved how that was a major point uh, in your new book. One more part of rethinking success. I wanted to, talk about for a few moments. You have a little more time? Sure. The I think impor- I
2: have, I have a couple of weeks.
1: <laughs> that's no, right. That's no, right. We all do. The importance of taking risks you talk about. Why is that important to helping us become better versions of ourselves?
2: Well, I, you know, it's funny when you, when you look at the data about, about, uh, people in their last days, when you ask, what would you have done differently? Right up, The top is taking, I should have taken more risk. Mm. And part of it is they feel like they live their life safely. And there were things they wish they would have done. You know, one woman, I, first time I heard this, she was what's called, I guess, a palliative um, nurse Mm -hmm. in the latter days. End of life, right. Yeah, she's, she's Australian. And she kept noticing this pattern where they would do these things. So, so I'm really aware of that, that, What does risk do? Risk enables you to keep focusing on the future and and trying new things. And and it could be small things, but it's just like getting out of your comfort zone. And the problem with living a life, it's almost like if you're an athlete, if you play a game not to get hurt, you're going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. You don't go in the basketball game and say, God, my goal for this hour is not to, you know, twist my knee right. or, or my or, ankle.
1: Or, I mean, what a terrible- Or playing prevent defense rather than like yeah, being real yeah. aggressive.
2: But if you, if you otherwise say, you know, it's to live. It's to, there there are some risks, but I really want to feel alive. I want to try some things. And you look at, you know, a friend of ours, you know him, that in Atlanta wrote that book. They interviewed 500 people over 100 mm-hmm. about- their lives and what was it about their lives that that really caused them to thrive? And so much of it is they always were trying things. They weren't sitting in a chair and saying, "God, I, I might catch a cold if I go outside. I, I oh, I might sprain my ankle. I might get robbed." They didn't live that way. Most, as as Ronald Reagan used to say, most of the fears we have never happened. So so you think of it, all that we have is this moment. But we contaminate the present moment by regrets about the past, which we can do nothing about, or fears of the future. The only moment we have is this moment, just learning to be present. And it's a really tough thing to do because we are always trying to plan and how to do this, and we all need to do some of this, but we need to also learn, how, do, how can I just be present with the people I'm with? It, it breaks your heart sometimes. You'll see people in a restaurant you know, a couple with their two kids and every one of them are on their devices. Right. And it's like we're every place but who we're with. And I think developing presence is really uh, a habit we need to, you know, rediscover.
1: Do you think you're good at taking risks? I know for me, it was a risk to try a podcast. I never Uh played on a platform like this. And would have been much easier to not try it. And certainly downside scenarios could exist and being embarrassing or lisping or not having good guests or not having listeners. But uh, I decided to take the chance. Do you think you're good at taking risk?
2: I think I am with some, you know, I think I've gotten comfortable. And part of it, as I I look at my life, I've never been really that qualified for anything I've done. And I just, (laughs) there's been a, confidence. And I think because I was loved well growing up that I felt uh, in my story, I felt confident to uh, try things. I think when you feel unconditionally loved, it's the consequences aren't that great when you fail, but you just see how people are so fearful. Did I dress the right way? Did I say the right things? How am I going to behave correctly? You know, that's all product of you, know, it's all about you, and instead of saying, you know, I'm just gonna go there and be about others. I'm gonna try to take a risk and love others and leave me behind there. Mm-hmm. You know, my self-absorption.
1: Well, I love how you uh, weave a lot of these topics together, and I see you playing them out in your own life. I remember around Christmas time, you showed me your. I don't think you called it your gratitude list, but maybe it was things you were thankful yeah. for or prayers. Yeah. and, and yeah. You it was lam- gratitude list. Okay, it was. And you laminate them and you keep them. So you've had them for many years.
2: Yeah, I try to put them on one graph piece of paper because these are little. And I'll have like, I'll shoot for every day, but I might make three or four days a week. But the end of the year, you think of that, do the math on that. You have hundreds and hundreds of these. So I just said, "Oh, you know what I'm going to do? Every year I'm just going to laminate that." So I have these thousands now of just things that are for which I'm grateful. And, and there are a lot of them are inconsequential and small. And do you keep that just for yourself, or do you show your family? or I think it's no, just I, for you? Just, just for me. That's, just for me. But maybe someday they'll want to see them.
1: Right. right. That'll be in the next book, maybe, or at least one year's version of that. I loved seeing that, and I don't have such a written list. It's a mental one, and I will tell you that on my mental uh, gratitude list uh, near the top— is you joining us today. It's been a wonderful gift to have you share your heart and your mind and some of your life experience with us, Doug, today.
2: Oh, uh, thanks.
1: I really, really appreciate
2: you. And Well, I appreciate you, my brother, and I, 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 think, it's, I think it's great what you're doing. You've got a great voice for this, mm. and you've got a great manner that's inviting and allows people to really explore things, honestly. Well, thank you. And- You give them time to do it, which is great. I really appreciate that. Thank you for
1: that. Congratulations on Rethinking Success. I'm positive it'll be a bestseller. And I know (laughs) folks can pre-order it on Amazon, right? Great. Well,
2: thank you so much. Okay.
1: And to all of our listeners throughout the U.S. and around the world, we do thank you for listening today. Wishing good health and important family time. Together during these uncertain times, Lord have mercy on us all and thanks again for listening.
0: We're thankful to Doug Holiday for joining us on such short notice. We also appreciate his honesty and the encouragement that he's given us in dealing with the isolation that's required in order to gain control over the spread of the coronavirus. We wish you and your family all the best during this stressful time. Up To is a production of
1: Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to
0: the Up to podcast.